On the morning of October 16, 1793, Marie Antoinette, the extravagant former Queen of France, was brought before the Revolutionary Tribunal to face charges of treason. It had been 266 days since her husband had been beheaded for the same crime. In the time since, she had been kept imprisoned in squalid and miserable conditions. The trial proceeded with haste, reaching its foregone conclusion in just two days. The crowd which had assembled in the aftermath of the guilty verdict couldn't help but stare at the former Habsburg as she was forcibly led to the guillotine. The events of the revolution had turned her hair from strawberry blonde to a light gray. Her once beautiful face was haggard and gaunt, despite the fact that she was merely 37 years old. She was dressed in a simple but pristine white gown of her own choosing and was seen clutching a small prayer book. Although she posed no physical threat, she emerged with her hands tied tightly behind her back and remained continuously surrounded by guards. The crowd that had gathered to watch her execution was enormous, and the mood was likely electric. Armchair historian Dan Carlin reminds us on his podcast, Hardcore History, that these celebrity executions were just about the only form of mass entertainment that existed in the era. The notoriety of the queen, whose supposed uttering of the phrase, let them eat cake, which preceded the violent uprisings that brought her family down, would have thus been must-see entertainment. The sans-culottes of Paris had waited for this precise moment for years, and were eager to see the last of the hated Austrian. As she approached the scaffold, Marie Antoinette stumbled and fell. A hush came over the crowd as she was helped to her feet and led up the remaining steps to the guillotine. One has to wonder about the regrets that passed through her mind at this point. Perhaps it was a favorite memory of a lavish ball thrown prior to the revolts which would ultimately claim her life. More likely, it was the images of her family being violently assaulted at the palace, or perhaps the time that a more loquacious crowd had paraded the severed head of her friend and lookalike, the Princess de Lamballe, on a halberd outside of her window. A radical member of the National Convention, Jacques-Louis Davis, sketched the death march from a window high above the grim proceedings that were happening in the courtyard that had become known as the Place de la Revolution. The queen awkwardly approached the guillotine, inadvertently stepping on the executioner's toe and immediately apologizing for the offense. It would be the last phrase to come off of her lips as moments later the blade fell with an ominous swoosh heard throughout the silent crowd that was collectively holding its breath. The queen's head was instantly separated from her body, held up for the crowd to see before a roar of triumph went up after the executioner cried out, Vive la République! You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. 
This is our final episode regarding the French Revolution. Episode number five, Viva la Revolution. French philosopher and Nobel Peace Prize winner in literature Albert Campus surmised that all modern revolutions have ended in a reinforcement of state power. Idealists such as Vladimir Lenin may have initially convinced his followers that his vanguard government would one day dissolve before the people who were ready to govern themselves. But all historians know that utopian solutions belong in the category of fiction. That is why Leon Trotsky and Joseph Stalin worked tirelessly, oftentimes against each other, to ensure that the revolution was permanent. From time to time, they would stir the pot, purging a new threat that only they could recognize. While they would declare victory over the threat de jour, they wouldn't ever accept that the revolution was finished. In other words, when you have a revolution cooking on the stove, make sure you have a revolutionist for a chef. At the moment, France would have been better off with a novice line cook being controlled by a rat than their leader of the moment, Maximilien Robespierre. Breaks were becoming a common theme throughout revolutionary France by the end of 1793. Historian Antonia Fraser reveals that the gravediggers happened to be taking a lunch break when the queen's body arrived at the designated cemetery. Unwilling to go back on the clock, they left the queen's head and body lying on the grass, giving a young sculptor, Marie Grossholtz, an opportunity to take a wax imprint for a death mask. Grossholtz later took on the name of Madame Tussard, who remains famous to this very day for her lifelike wax museum. After escaping revolutionary France, Madame Tussard put up a permanent exhibit in London on Baker Street in order to show off her grotesque collection of royal death masks. A side project of her show was specially made to display the gore of the French Revolution. It became known throughout England as the Chamber of Horrors. We will start where we more or less left off in our prior episode. Two leftist political factions had come to dominate the National Convention of Paris, which in turn had come to dominate all of France. The Girondins were centrists that had risen up to speak in favor of staying the execution of King Louis and the Montrenards, who were led by the power-obsessed Maximilien Robespierre. Abraham Lincoln left us a reminder that a house divided against itself cannot stand. It is a saying that is valid on both sides of the Atlantic. The Girondins, as the leaders of the convention, were fighting three simultaneous conflicts. First, a war with European powers. Second, an internal struggle against climate-induced food shortages. And third a subversive counter-revolution plotted by Robespierre from within their own government. Indeed, the threat emanated from within their own Jacobin House faction. 
France had prematurely declared war against Austria and Prussia under the assumption that the two imperial powers were hell-bent on saving Louis XVI. From the onset, the war had gone horrifically for them, as Enlightenment ideals had ruined their military chain of command. But that all changed when Prussia beat a hasty retreat after faltering during a minor skirmish at Velmi. They ultimately had larger fish to fry than the French. Rather than ending their external conflict in order to focus internally on their revolution, the newly elected French government expanded their war effort in order to loot their neighbors' treasuries so that they would be able to pay off their internal debt. But every action triggers a reaction, and their European adventure soon morphed into a nightmare after England involved itself by forming the First Coalition. At each critical moment, France had a chance to limit the damage that its past had wrought. But as historian Ian Davidson reveals, they instead doubled down. Rather than calmly assessing their position, France always lashed out heedlessly to the larger consequences. He writes, Towards the end of January, England broke off relations with France. France responded at the end of the month by declaring war in turn. England's rupture with France was echoed across Europe. Spain broke off relations in March, and the convention then declared war against it. Later that month, most of the German princes, followed by almost all of the Italian states, apart from Venice and Genoa, joined Austria and Prussia against France. It was now at war with virtually the whole of Europe. Each of these individual conflicts could have been avoided, but like a petulant child, France had picked a fight far larger than they could handle. Worse, their army was on the brink of disbanding, as the soldiers that had signed up for the Revolutionary War of 1791 were now entitled to legally walk away from their contracts, having served their allotted time. This dramatically reduced the size of their army in December of 1792 from 400,000 to less than 228,000 in February. In order to reverse this, the Girondins issued a mandatory conscription of 300,000 men. As is the case with most drafts, the decision was quite unpopular. The details of the draft were left up to local authorities, as the National Convention was still wrapping their heads around governing. Local implementation ensured that the draft was immediately biased against those who were either locally unpopular or those that are often described by lawmakers as undesirable. Worse, the ancient regime's practice of paying a fee in order to force someone else to take your place remained enshrined within the law. Thus, as is the case with most drafts, the rich dodged it while the poor were forced into it. Revolts across the country soon broke out in opposition to the draft. The convention responded by empowering 84 of its members to serve as official envoys and mission to be sent out to the trouble spots. These individuals each held the power of dictators as they were allowed to solve the problem utilizing any extrajudicial means that they personally deemed necessary. 
their effectiveness in subduing the draft rebellions soon resulted in their application to solve all of the convention's problems. Philosopher Abraham Maslow is famous for the creation of the Law of Instrument. In this theorem, he posits that if the only tool you have is a hammer, you tend to see every problem as a nail. These convention envoys and mission began to take over military command, wrestling control away from generals who had been unwilling to carry out the convention's war plans with the vigor that the politicians believed was appropriate. There were even instances of an envoy executing a general who wasn't meeting Paris's expectations. The over-reliance upon this hammer seriously weakened the convention by drawing away significant numbers of its leading members, allowing the internal rot to fester unattended to. The envoys tried to limit the consequences of rising food prices, but poor weather, increased demands for the military, and a subsequent shortage of farm workers ensured that food volatility remained constant throughout each phase of the revolution. Price controls and heavy subsidization were the common solutions chosen by the government, but in each instance government regulation worsened the food shortage. Davidson gives us one contemporary estimate that around one-tenth of the French population was indignant and needed public support at the beginning of the revolution. By 1793, the rate reached as high as one-fifth in parts of Paris. The rising anger related to food shortages opened up a narrow window of opportunity for someone to seize power. Maximilian, however, remained patiently waiting in the shadows as it was Charles-Francois du Pierrier Dumowitz's turn at wrestling the club from Hercules' hand. Dumeritz was a celebrated general who had essentially won the first phase of France's revolutionary wars against Austria and Prussia. After a visit from Danton, who was serving as an envoy and mission, the popular general entered into secret negotiations with the commander of the Austrian armed forces. The straw that had broken the camel's back was word from Danton that the convention was now requiring all generals to live at camp with their soldiers. This evidently was too much for the decorated warrior. When his liaisons with the enemy were uncovered, four new envoys and mission were sent to strip him of his command with orders to place him under arrest. The general attempted to turn his army around with the intent to march on Paris, presumably to launch an attack on the convention itself. Historians believe that there are several reasons why the national hero decided to betray the French Republic. One of the main ones was his growing disillusionment with the radical direction the revolution was taking. The general was a moderate who believed in a constitutional monarchy and was reportedly horrified by the mounting excesses of the revolution. There was also an ego involved as he felt that he was not getting the recognition he deserved for his victories. Lastly, 
It is always better to strike first, as the convention had begun to open investigations regarding the general's embezzlement of war funds. His defection had significant effects on the French Republic, as his decision to join the enemy was a major blow to French morale, undermining confidence in the Republican government's ability to win the war. The envoys were able to stop the marching of Dumerwitz's army, but the general himself was able to cross over to the Austrian side on April 5, 1793. This defection also exposed serious flaws in the military leadership, as well as an intimate knowledge of the government's intelligence operations. The general even managed to smuggle across enemy lines the eldest son of the Duke of Orleans the last male relative of Louis XVI. Alas, the story didn't end well for the turncoat general. Although he was treated initially as a hero by the Austrians, he quickly wore out his welcome and was eventually forced to ply his trade elsewhere. But once it becomes known that you are willing to switch sides mid-war, you kind of become unemployable. He was turned down by the Russian Tsar, and in 1823, at the age of 84, he died poor and forgotten in England, where he was surviving off of a miserably small government pension. Dumeritz's stature ensured that his treason couldn't be swept under the rug, and Davidson reveals that word of his betrayal set off an explosion of recriminations between the political parties, with everyone accusing everybody else. One day after the general had officially defected to the Austrians, the convention created the Committee of Public Safety in order to supervise all actions related to national defense. Their jurisdiction covered both external and internal threats to the nation. The death of the king threw off the delicate balance that had prevented the left from cannibalizing itself. As long as Louis was alive, the Girondins and the Montrenards remained focused on his fate. Once his peace had been removed from the board, there was nothing to distract them from their lethal pursuit of power. On April 5th, the day of the general's betrayal, Robespierre called for the Girondins' expulsion from the National Convention. The official reason was the fact that some members of the Girondins had argued to save the king's life during his trial. Jean-Paul Marat, the influential Jacobin writer of La Amie de Pouvoir, had signed the expulsion document and thus became the target of the Girondins' wrath. The convention impeached Marat by a vote of 226 to 93, but the Tribunal Revolutionnaire, which had been stacked with Montenard members, was in charge of the journalist's trial and they easily acquitted him of all charges. The Tribunal Beast that had been unleashed by the convention on its external foes had now come back to bite the hand that originally had fed it. Soon, the Committee on Public Safety became the de facto power within Paris. Maximilien Robespierre was the head of a 12-man commission 
which set up tribunals to try and execute suspected counter-revolutionaries. Anyone deemed by these 12 men as a threat was at risk of imminent arrest, trial, and execution with little application of the rights which the revolution had so carefully enshrined within its declaration of the rights of man. Ironically, Robespierre had begun the revolution as a staunch opponent of the death penalty, but had come to believe that it was a necessary tool for dealing with counter-revolutionaries and enemies of the state. Increasingly, however, the man who simultaneously wore two pairs of glasses despite having clear vision came to see his personal enemies and the enemies of the revolution as one and the same. Robespierre gradually increased his control over the organization until it became a de facto committee of one. Corruption investigations were soon initiated against the heads of the Girondins. As his net was closing in, his targets gifted him the insurrection of May 31st. It was a mistake from which they would never recover. The Girondins called for a political rally in Paris to mobilize the crowd in order to remove opposition Jacobin leaders from the convention. The crowd arrived as expected, but turned hostile to the Girondins in part because of their role in creating the despised military draft, as well as for their failure to curb the ongoing food shortages. French historian Francois Ferret believes that the entire thing was brilliantly orchestrated by Maximilien Robespierre, but others, such as George Rood, aren't sure. Rude believes that the insurrection was a spontaneous popular uprising against the Girondins and the economic crisis rather than a coordinated move by a brilliant political strategist. Either way, Robespierre pounced by utilizing the Committee of Public Safety to arrest his political opposite and charge him with treason. The arrest of so many Girondins and their sympathizers gave the Montrenards who were now synonymous with the term Jacobin, complete control of the National Convention. Jean-Paul Marat was the first to pay the price for his role in the downfall of the Girondins. We have hinted at the life of one of the revolution's most vile figures, but his death offers us a chance to explore him further. It came about on a hot summer day on July 13, 1793. The infamous journalist and radical politician was taking a bath in his small, damp Paris apartment. Despite his attempts to relieve the pain of a chronic skin condition, he was often tormented by it, leaving him unable to vacate his bathtub for long periods of time. Indeed, the most famous image of his murder comes from the revolution's official artist Jacques-Louis Davis. It shows Marat slumped over in the tub, putting quill pen to paper on the latest issue of his widely read sensationalist newspaper. He didn't know it at the time, but 24-year-old Charlotte Cordray was making her way to Marat's apartment. She was of noble stock, a proud Girondin who had, like so many others, become disillusioned with the violence and extremism of the latter phases of the French Revolution. 
She blamed Marat for the downfall of her party and wanted to put an end to his twisted influence upon her nation, no matter what the personal cost was. Cordray arrived at her destination armed with a letter of introduction, claiming to have important information about a group of counter-revolutionaries. Marat, always eager to receive new rumors that could be used to sell his violent vision to his audience, invited her into his chambers. As he remained lying in his bathtub, Cordray approached him with a hidden knife and plunged it into his chest, piercing his heart. Marat let out a terrifying scream of pain and collapsed back into the tub. The murderer was quickly apprehended by the guards who had been stationed outside of the apartment building. She was unapologetic about her actions, declaring that she had killed one man to save 100,000. She lost her head four days later. The death of Marat shocked France and the world. Despite his radical views, Marat had become an important symbol of the revolution and was seen by many as a martyr. His funeral was attended by thousands of people, and he was initially afforded burial in the Pantheon, an honor bestowed upon other French luminaries such as Voltaire, Rousseau, Victor Hugo, and Marie Curie. Alas, his eternal rest didn't last long, as a later version of the National Assembly would initiate a process known as depantheonization in order to throw what was left of his decomposing body into a common sewer, inspiring drama critic Lawrence Hutton to pen the phrase, Revenge upon the bones of a dead enemy may be sweet, but it can hardly be savory. Corday was swiftly tried and executed, but not everybody mourned the loss of the revolution's most prolific agitator. Camille Desmoulins, one of Marat's contemporaries, eulogized him by pointing out that Marat was a genius, but a genius of evil. He was always predicting assassinations, and at last he himself fell victim to one. Rather than taking his death as a warning of the dangers of extremism, the Committee on Public Safety only intensified their vision of a despotic France united beneath Maximilien Robespierre. Solving the internal fight within the Jacobin Club was just one of the battles that the French had been fighting. Now the Montrenards inherited the fights that had been the cause of the Girondins' vulnerability. In the summer of 1793, France remained at war on three fronts. This time, the trifecta of threats included a rebellion in the region of Vendée, a civil war within several parts of the New Republic, and the foreign war against the European coalition. We'll take a brief look at each conflict in order. The Vendée region was fed up with the revolution and sought to break away amidst the chaos. It was supported by Catholic and Royalist factions who remained upset about priests being forced to take an oath of loyalty to the state. 
Thus, the internal clash between the Girondins and Robespierre merely opened the door for revolution, rather than serve as a cause of it. The rebels took the early initiative, but Robespierre succeeded where the Girondins failed and managed to massively raise the rate of successfully drafted soldiers. Apparently having a reputation of being giddy to guillotine anyone for anything makes for an effective recruitment strategy. The newly drafted soldiers utilized an effective scorched-earth policy which saw the French burn their own villages, destroy essential crops, and kill indiscriminately large numbers of non-combatants. General Louis-Marie Thoreau led the forces in the pursuit of victory at all costs, resulting in the pillaging of villages and raping of men, women, and children. Some estimates claim that as much as half of the population of the Vendee met a violent end during the conflict, suggesting that genocide was the accepted policy of the day. It took three years for the conflict to come to an end, with more than 100,000 casualties. The region's economy was counted among those casualties as it was left utterly destroyed by the incursion, 6,000 rebels filled the prisons of France by late autumn 1793, many of them dying within their cells from a combination of starvation and disease. A second set of civil violence was set off by the sudden decapitation of the Girondin leadership. As it oftentimes has throughout history, Normandy led the charge but it and the other provinces that rebelled were swiftly put down by the introduction of the newly drafted soldiers. The exception was Lyon, which the French army besieged for two months beginning on August 9, 1793. The convention decided to make the city an example in blatant revenge for the execution of the local Jacobin leader, a man whose sister had nearly married Robespierre. It decreed that Lyon will lose its name. It will be called Liberated Town. It will be destroyed. Everywhere the rich lived will be destroyed. There will remain only the houses of the poor, the homes of misguided or proscribed patriots, buildings specifically employed for industry and monuments consecrated to humanity and to public education. On the ruins of Lyon, there will be raised a column which will bear witness for posterity to the crimes and the punishment of the royalists of this town with this inscription. Lyon made war on liberty. Lyon is no more. The decree was a bit more dramatic than what actually happened, as the siege ended with around 50 of the 600 houses of the so-called rich raised along with all of the town's fortifications. Today, Lyon remains thriving as the third most populated city of France. Although they ultimately protected the city, Davidson points out that the violence doled out upon the people of Liberated Town over the two months was massive, wholesale, and horrific. He writes that a first tribunal carried out 106 executions by firing squad, a second 79 by guillotine, but a third tribunal moved on to prescribe mass executions by what were called mitteraldes, 
the point-blank firing of cannon filled with shot into crowds of people. 268 were killed in this manner. In all, the number of those executed at Lyon, according to the most detailed history of the affair, was probably near 1,900. The two conflicts that I just discussed, along with the ongoing climate change issues and failures within French subsidization and price control policies, meant that the current level of government taxation wasn't close to what was needed to pay for the ongoing revolution. In desperate need of a solution, Robespierre turned to the third conflict with the United Kingdoms of Europe in order to make ends meet. They altered the purpose of the war from spreading revolutionary ideals to indiscriminate looting. The government's chief military strategist in the Committee on Public Safety wrote to the generals at the front that, I cannot hide from you, that we are lost if you do not very soon cross over into enemy territory to get food and resources of all kinds, because France cannot long bear the strange state in which it finds itself at present. We must live off of the enemy or perish. Again in 1794, he instructed his generals in the field to strip the country and make it impossible for them to give our enemies any means of coming back. The most striking example of this new policy occurred during the French occupation of the Austrian Netherlands in 1794. The French army was ordered to seize food, livestock, and other resources from the local population, which were then shipped back to France to feed the hungry population and finance the ongoing war effort. According to one estimate, the French army seized 100,000 horses, 300,000 heads of cattle, millions of pints of wine, and 10 million bushels of grain. In Italy, they took large amounts of artwork, gold, and other valuables from the churches, palaces, and estates of the Italian aristocracy. The European First Coalition had too many internal divisions and conflicting interests to win the war against the now significantly larger French forces. Additionally, the French had superior military leadership as well as a unique mastery over artillery on the battlefield. Prussia and Spain were the first to defect, leading to the collapse of the coalition. Ironically, the chaos within the governing halls of the National Convention unnecessarily prolonged the conflict, as the Allies couldn't properly determine who they were supposed to negotiate with regarding their surrender. France's military success didn't ensure political success for Maximilien Robespierre, who had based much of his rule purely upon fear. Psychology today points out that fear is a strong driving force in an individual's decision to participate in politics. The journal reveals to us that peer-reviewed research shows that in America today, conservatives are generally more sensitive to threat. This threat bias can distort reality, fuel irrational fears, and make one more vulnerable to fear-mongering politicians. 
Of course, no one will claim that Robespierre and the revolutionary Frenchmen of the era were conservatives. But the study is interesting in every way, particularly the central piece of evidence used via a 2012 study where liberal and conservative participants were shown collages of negative images, such as car wrecks and open wounds crawling with maggots mixed with positive images, such as a happy child or cute bunny. Detailed computer analysis showed that self-stylized conservatives focused first on the threatening and disturbing images, while simultaneously dwelling on them for far longer. Who would have known that figuring out your political affiliation would be as simple as determining whether you would prefer to stare at a cute bunny rabbit or someone's open wound on their face oozing with maggots by the handful? We don't live in a safe world. No matter how much bubble wrap we place around us and our surroundings, danger, whether purposeful or accidental, can find us. The political power that fear has is derived from a human desire to feel as though we are in control. Politicians exploit our fear by claiming that they are the only ones that can protect us that they offer the shield that ensures that whatever is out there within the unknown won't be able to hurt us as long as they are around. This can serve as a comforting feeling, one that we get used to early on as children when we believe with all of our heart that our parents have the means to protect us from anything that we fear, real or imagined. But Robespierre was the worst kind of parent, creating dangers out of nothing in order to ensure that his will was supreme. Although he rose to prominence with the revolution, Robespierre's ideals had morphed divergent from the rest of France. He provides the evidence of such within his own notebook, where he scribed, We must have a single will. It must be Republican or Royalist. If it is to be Republican, we must have Republican ministers, Republican newspapers, Republican deputies, a Republican government. The internal dangers come from the bourgeoisie, and to defeat the bourgeoisie, we must rouse the people. Everything had been prepared to place the people under the yoke of the bourgeoisie, and to make the defenders of the Republic perish on the scaffold. His rant makes clear the notion that France needed an authoritarian government to steer the revolution, one which fully embraced the idea that they were in a continuous life-or-death struggle. In this worldview, any point of view that differed from the single will was a counter-revolutionary threat and had to be dealt with swiftly and brutally to ensure that the infection couldn't spread but the only tool they had was the guillotine. And thus it became the solution for every problem. Having successfully purged the Girondins from the ranks of government, Robespierre began the internal war of the factions. He started with a feint, drafting a new constitution complete with another Declaration of the Rights of Men in 1793. It was submitted to a national referendum 
which dutifully passed it with a mere 1.8 million of the eligible 7 million voters choosing to exercise the privileged right that the revolution had been fought for. Despite its passage, the Constitution of 1793 was never put into place, as the government manipulated a made-up crisis to maintain their emergency extrajudicial powers. St. Just, Robespierre's right-hand man, stated that in the circumstances in which the Republic finds itself, the Constitution cannot be set up. It would be destroyed by means of itself. It would become the guarantee of attacks on liberty because it would lack the force necessary to suppress them. In a made-for-TV moment, the Jacobins literally laid to rest the stillborn pieces of paper that comprised the new constitution in an arc of cedar wood, as if in preservation for some indefinite future. The author of one of the most popular newspapers in revolutionary France, Herbert, spoke out against the government's growing authoritarianism. He led a crowd of 2,000 angry sans culottes in front of the politically influential Hotel de Ville on September 4th. The next day, he was at their head, marching into the National Convention's hall in an attempt to intimidate lawmakers. Robespierre, however, outplayed him leading a significantly larger march that afternoon upon his own branch of government. This larger group demanded what Marat had, the right to place terror on the agenda. The term terror itself is a hard one to pin down. We still utilize the main concept within the modern-day understandings of the word terrorism, which is the unlawful use of violence and intimidation, especially against civilians in the pursuit of political aims. The key to understanding the distinction between terrorism and regular run-of-mill violence is the latter part of the definition, specifically the phrase, in the pursuit of a political agenda. There has to be something that the perpetrator of violence wants, something that they believe violence will help them achieve. Considering that government is literally the means to achieve political aims, one ought to be quite concerned when the government seeks out a policy of terror. Davidson tells us that it came without any clearly defined aims or policy, and it was carried out without any detectable rules. Its main rationale seems to have been to prop up the authority of Robespierre, and its method is the indiscriminate threat of death to anyone who was or who could be accused of being a threat to the Republic. Robespierre's literal reign of terror began on September 29, 1793, with the passage of the Law of Suspects. This law took away any assumption of the innocence of the accused. If they were merely suspected of counter-revolutionary thoughts, they were guilty. Somewhere around 5% of the entire male population of France was immediately arrested, with the vast majority of them falling into one of the following categories. Foreigners, others, former grudges, or undesirables. Over 500,000 were immediately arrested in the wake of the policy change, but not accused of any specific crimes nor did they ever stand trial, 
with most rotting in prison for the eight months that Robespierre remained at the helm. The law contained seven articles that identified a wide range of possible threats to the state. I'll let the text speak for itself here. Considered as suspects people are, one, those who either by their conduct or their relations or by their words or writings have shown themselves to be partisans of tyranny or of federalism and enemies of freedom. Two, those who cannot justify in the manner prescribed by the decree of last 21st of March their means of existence and the acquittal of their civic duties. Three, those of whom have been denied certificates of good citizenship. Four, public officials who have been suspended or discharged from their functions by the National Convention or its commissioners and have not been reinstated, notably those who have been or ought to be discharged under the law of last August 14th. Five, those former nobles, with their husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, sons or daughters, brothers or sisters, and agents of emigres who have not consistently demonstrated their commitment to the revolution. Six, those who have emigrated during the interval between July 1st, 1789 and the publication of the law of April 8th, 1792, even if they have returned to France within the time prescribed by that law or earlier. And seven, those who have been considered a vagabond or cannot pay local and federal taxes decreed by the National Assembly. To be clear, the law of suspects was not a new idea. Rather, it is a sinister idea that is impossible to revoke from human consciousness. Most recent iteration came from my own nation, the United States after the 9-11 terror attacks. The Patriot Act, which was so hastily put together that no single lawmaker had time to read it, originally included a program codenamed Operation TIPS, which would have allowed the FBI to wiretap any individual that was anonymously turned in as a quote-unquote terror threat. Best of all, those that turned someone in received a prize of $25 ensuring that the tip line and the government's subsequent legal pathway for mass surveillance of its citizenry would run continuously. Thankfully, the tips program didn't make it into the final version of the bill. Show trials were set up to justify the policy. After all, if all of the suspects were found guilty, it would confirm society's worst fear. Namely, that the boogeyman was real and happened to be living throughout your neighborhood. Perhaps these dangerous criminals were even watching your children for you when you ran your daily errands. Conscious of the continuing tug of war between Paris and the rest of the provinces of France, Robespierre centralized the terror campaign, declaring that only the Revolutionary Tribunal of Paris could try those arrested as suspects. The delay that this caused more than anything else saved tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of lives. Davidson reports that the revolution had now entered a period of frenzy and fear, of public and private accusations, of secret denunciations and betrayals, of noisy protests and furtive political conspiracies 
Hébert was arrested and guillotined, as was his longtime ally, Georges Danton. Both had been deemed threats to Maximilian's power. Danton spit in the face of his accuser, proclaiming at his own execution that his head should be shown high to the crowd as it will be worth it. As the war of the factions continued, Robespierre boldly defended his policy, offering the convention a dramatic speech in February of 1794. Among the highlights, the dictator tells us that we seek an order of things in which all the base and cruel passions are bound with chains. All the beneficial and generous passions are awakened by the laws, where ambition becomes the desire to merit glory and to serve our country, where distinctions are born only of equality itself, where the citizen is subject to the magistrate, the magistrate to the people, and the people to justice where our country assures the well-being of every individual and where each individual proudly enjoys our country's prosperity and glory, where every soul grows greater through the continual flow of Republican sentiments and by the need of deserving the esteem of a great people, where the arts are adornments of the liberty which ennobles them and commerce the source of public wealth rather than solely the monstrous opulence of a few families. But in order to lay the foundations of democracy among us and to consolidate it, he continues, we must finish the war of liberty against tyranny and safely cross through the storms of the revolution. That is the goal of the revolutionary system which you have put in order. You should therefore still base your conduct upon the stormy circumstances in which the Republic finds itself, and the plan of your administration should be the result of the spirit of revolutionary government combined with the general principles of democracy. Here the development of our theory would reach its limits. If you had only to steer the ship of the Republic through calm waters, but the tempest rages, and the state of the revolution in which you find yourself imposes upon you another task. One could say that the two contrary geniuses that have been depicted competing for control of the realm of nature are fighting in this great epic of human history to shape irrevocably the destiny of the world, and that France is the theater of this mighty struggle. Without, all the tyrants encircle you. Within, all the friends of tyranny conspire. They will conspire until crime has been robbed of hope. We must smother the internal and external enemies of the Republic or perish. In this situation, the first maxim of your policy ought to be to lead the people by reason and the people's enemies by terror. Robespierre then proceeds to justify his own dictatorial policies, finishing his long address with, If the mainspring of popular government in peacetime is virtue, amid revolution it is at the same time both virtue and terror. Virtue without which terror is fatal, terror without which virtue is impotent. Terror is nothing but prompt, severe, inflexible justice. It is therefore an emanation of virtue. 
It has been said that terror was the mainspring of despotic government. Does your government then resemble a dictatorship? Yes, as the sword which glitters in the hands of liberty's heroes resembles the one with which tyranny's lackeys are armed. Let the despot govern his brutalized subjects by terror. He is right to do this as a dictator. Subdue liberty's enemies by terror and you will be right as founders of the republic. The government of the revolution is the dictatorship of liberty against tyranny. Is force made only to protect crime? And is it not to strike the heads of the proud that lightning is destined? Let tyranny reign for a single day, and on the morrow not one patriot will be left. Historians learned a long time ago that wars against ideas are impossible to win. Thus, you can't help but scoff at the idiocy of declaring a war on terror, or likewise the stupidity of governing via terror. Ultimately, no one can keep a person in fear forever. As individuals began to question if they were the next to be arrested, Robespierre sped up the killing fields, overworking the guillotine to the point of exhaustion. From March 1793 to June 1794, 1,251 people had been guillotined. In a six-week period from June to the fall of Robespierre, the number reached 1,376. Foucault Tinville, the chief prosecutor of the Revolutionary Tribunal, stated what all could see, as heads were falling like slates off of the roof. The economic law of diminishing returns surmises that everything loses its luster when you have too much of it. By 1794, the revolution was no longer buoyed up by the hysteria of bloodlust. Public executions, which had previously attracted vast, screaming, bloodthirsty mobs, were now greeted with aversion. People turned their backs and shops closed their doors on the daily processions of the baskets to the place of execution, the objects of solened and frightened apathy. As the walls closed in on Robespierre, he attempted to turn to the tried and true response of all dictators at the end. He initiated another purge against his closest allies vaguely declaring that there were counter-revolutionaries among his own party and promising that they would soon be found and executed. Rather than going along with it, as it appeared the rest of the convention was planning to do, Pierre-Joseph Camden, a merchant-turned-revolutionary, waited for a moment of silence, before then standing up and proclaiming loudly, before being dishonored, I shall speak to France. He then calmly demanded Robespierre to name names. It was a reasonable request. After all, it had been the National Convention which had institutionalized the practice of public votes. In the face of the challenge, Robespierre faltered, simply refusing to answer. 
The next day, St. Just rose to the convention's podium to try to reinforce his boss's now tenuous position. But the rest of the parliament had spent the night secretly meeting, and they purposefully drowned out St. Just's voice with loud clamoring. The Jacobins had become a circular firing squad. Sensing real danger, Robespierre desperately attempted to speak out to restore order, but he was shouted down by angry protests from the men who had followed him down the narrow alleyway that terror emanates from. Jacques Nicolas Billiard Varin was given the honor of being the one that stood next. When the chamber quieted down for him, he gleefully accused Robespierre of being a tyrant before ordering the arrest of his inner circle. Unlike Robespierre, Billiard Varin was prepared to name names. Maximilian's defense will never be known as the president's bell was used to ensure that the words that left his lips never reached the ears of those who had already made their minds up. The dictator had one final chance, as the old insurrection commune had never been done away with. It steadfastly refused to admit Robespierre to any of its prisons. Thus, the architect of terror was released and slunk off to the Hotel de Ville in order to regroup. The next day, after the convention legally declared that their former leader's life was forfeit, two columns of soldiers converged on the hotel. They posed as pro-terror revolutionaries and confirmed such at the door of the hotel by properly guessing that the secret password for entrance was... Viva Robespierre. The dictator was in the midst of writing a desperate appeal to the armed forces when pistol fire rang out in the hotel's lobby. Maximilian was hit in the jaw. It is unclear whether it was from an attempt to take his own life or from the crossfire. But in all versions of the events, he laid on a table in the hotel for hours in great pain. By 5.30 that evening, he and his remaining allies were executed via the guillotine. Right before it was his turn, the bandage holding together the bullet wound in his jaw was roughly ripped off, and he met his fate screaming in agony. The government of the French Republic chose not to drown out that undignified sound. After the death of Maximilien Robespierre, the French Revolution entered its final phase, during which it became more moderate and focused on restoring order and stability to the country. The reign of terror came to an end and most of Robespierre's allies were arrested and executed in the days and months that followed. The new government, known as the Directory, was established in 1795 and lasted until 1799. It was a more conservative government than the previous revolutionary coalitions, and it largely focused on stabilizing the country's economy and institutions. However, it was also marked by political instability and corruption, which ultimately led to its downfall. In 1799, Napoleon Bonaparte came to power in a coup and established the consulate, 
which was a new form of government that gave him nearly unlimited power. He was eventually crowned emperor in 1804, and his reign marked the official end of the French Revolution. The story of how that came to be, and what became of France while beneath his rule of the emperor, is the subject of our next series. Although the French Revolution was ultimately a failure, it had profound effects upon the world. Some of the most significant legacies of the revolution include the spread of democratic ideals. The principles of liberty, equality, and fraternity were championed by the people of France and became the basis for modern democratic societies around the world. It also contributed to the dangerous rise of nationalism, a belief that the nation has the right to govern themselves and control their own destiny. Unchecked nationalism justifies some of the worst of humanity's instincts, particularly the notion that the subjugation of others is in their best interest. The end of the French Revolution ushered in the end of the imperial monarchies and the unrestrained growth of the nation-state. Secularism also increased in the wake of the Revolution. The hostile actions in France against the Catholic Church broke some of the hold that the Church had over its people. Although it didn't kill off the Church, it did break the inseparable bond between Church and State that had prevented the rise of secularism in Europe. Although Napoleon would be the first to figure it out, modern warfare tactics, including the use of artillery and mobility, emerged from France's revolutionary wars. Lastly, the goal of any revolution is to spread their ideas beyond their borders. In this way, the French Revolution can be deemed a success, as a number of revolutionary movements, including the Haitian Revolution, the Latin American Wars of Independence, and the European Revolutions of 1848, all took their cue from the French. Individual ideas, such as those espoused through the Declaration of the Rights of Man, the metric system, and the French tricolor flag, all began here in the chaos that was revolutionary France. Thankfully, a few of their more radical ideas failed to stick. In the wake of their overthrow of Louis XVI, the revolutionaries had redesigned all playing cards with the king, queen, and jack replaced by cards depicting liberty, equality, and fraternity. Equality even had her traditional breast bared to help you distinguish your trump card. Disturbingly, the rules of checkers were even amended so that no one could ever crown a king again. But we all need to be thankful that the most controversial portion of the revolution was never exported outside of the borders of France, namely a calendar that wasn't organized around the sun, one that had nine workdays with a mere one day off. That calendar even replaced 1792 with the designation of year one. I like to believe that acceptance of a calendar such as that would be one that would invite another uprising.
I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.